Welcome to the Yellow Peril Podcast, where we help you navigate the perilous world of Asian American identity through pop culture, sex, politics, and whatever other random stuff is currently distracting us. Welcome back, Yellow Perilers. Greetings to all you Yangs, all you Parks, all you Wrens. I'm Jeff Foki, and this week we have an interview with Nguyen Tran, chef and partner of Button Mash, a restaurant and barcade here in Los Angeles. Fu Bang Nguyen and Chung Bui host this episode as they talk with Tran about how the restaurant got its start and how the food industry is coping with the pandemic and the constant barrage of variables thwarting Button Mash and other locally owned restaurants. As ever, we hope you're staying home and staying safe during these difficult times. Hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the Yellow Peril Podcast. We wanted to thank our special guest, Nguyen Tran. Thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah, we finally thank did you. it. This is a Vietnamese takeover. I know the last time you guys did this, we had Toki was here, but yeah, but then also we had yeah, we tried to have an interview with you when right right after you uh, released your cookbook, the Star Kitchen cookbook, but the we had technical difficulties, we couldn't use the audio. So, I'm oh, glad that's you, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So glad you uh, decided to uh, overlook that uh, amateur move and, and and join us again. So, and don't don't I, yeah, don't feel bad about saying anything you did before over again because that that podcast is lost for the archive so for sure oh man i want to i want to hear what i said it was a bad echo right that's what it was echo it was a bad echo and you you sounded like a piece of shit so yeah it's fine <laughs> you sounded like you were you sounded like you were deep in the what is that from the movie get out when you're like in the is it the upside down or the no you you just you just mix up get out with uh, stranger things <laughs> yeah i did i did you find different worlds one of them is about small black kids, right? And the other one is about <laughs> two white kids dating. I don't. Yeah, but that that, that project, th- th- those are pol- polar opposites. Yeah, one is white, one is black. That is entirely correct. That's <laughs> true. That's true. I understand. Oh, I can see how you would confuse those two shows, though. They're very, very. <laughs> <laughs> now we have we have a list of questions, but I want to start with who the hell are you? I don't think I don't think I've ever met you. Have I met you? I'm not sure when. Possibly. Do you, actually, do you want me to s- pronounce your name correctly? Oh, Wing. You could say that. You could are we say all Wing. saying our our names in Vietnamese? Because my name is Vu Bang, and that's Jung over there. Jung Day. Jung Day. Wing Wing Day. Suila Wing. For the longest time, I was calling Win. We, I mean, we've been friends for a while, but for the longest time, I was calling Jung Win, <laughs> and you well, never corrected I mean, me. No, I corrected you once, and then you then you didn't fix it again. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm over it right now. Like, look, did you, did no, okay, me wait. And I just brushed you off. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're like, oh, that's all. That's all, that. That was the answer. But for anyone listening, Wing is the the last name, right? And Wing is the first name, which is not the same because I'm named after a mountain called Gao Wing in Vietnam. So you know, but for all intents and purposes, I. You know, I'm so used to people missing my name all my life, so I'm like, whatever. Wait, is the mountain's called Gao Nguyen? Gao Nguyen, yeah. It's really famous for uh, coffee bean picking. Oh. Are these the civet ones where, like, weasels shit it out or just regular beans? Pre, pre-civet uh, poop beans. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Have you had, uh, do, you, do you have a theory on the whole civet thing? Do you, like, do you prefer the civet, civet beans? You know, it's... I don't have it. I mean, my personal experience is they're incredibly aromatic, and they hold. Like, no, 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 and not, 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 not in a poo-poo way. Not, no, 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 like 
I oh you know you know Anderson like Andy Lee, he yeah. bought he brought me so you know that coffee empire that split up but from the uh, husband and wife is it Zheng Wing uh, like Zheng coffee? Wing. Oh, yeah. So they, had, oh, wow. so they had a coffee. They had the civet beans, and Anderson brought me back some in like, God, what was it like two thousand nine? And we opened it up in 2015 because we had it like sealed and it was, we opened it up and it was like engulfed the room with coffee. It was so strong in a beautiful way though. It was really beautiful. Do, do I, do I say beautiful again or just like, do I just beautiful. say beautiful? Oh. It is, so, it is aromatic. So I, I, no, I've it, had it and it was very, very strong. Uh, very worth it. No, look, once you clean the poo-poo off, it, it does a miraculous thing, that, that chemical reaction when it goes through the body of the civet. I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't it does digest it. It just changes it. Cool. <laughs> cool I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to edit in the sound of a civet there. Okay, hey, you, you should. Edit in the sound of a civet. Can, can I'm sure we... it goes... <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to make a shitting sound, too. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, you know that whole thing about how, like, everybody's language is based on the animals around them? So I'm sure, like, the animal kind of sounds like, you know, Civets, huh? Vin Vietnamese somehow. <laughs> is that is that a thing? Okay, forget it. Oh, by the way, uh, hashtag very rare for the, the entire uh, panel to be uh, Vietnamese people. 100%. Yeah, I mean, this was this was the whole point. I mean, we've been planning this for three years now. We finally took it over. That is true. Hey, wait, before before we get carried away, though, uh, can you answer Wubang's question, Win? Oh, there you, was Jim. a question. Yeah, who there the, was a who question. The, who the fuck are you? I Who the fuck am I? Uh, my name is Wing Trung, or Win Tran. Uh, I'm a Vietnamese American. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh... 11 years ago, my wife and I started an illegal restaurant called Starry Kitchen out of our apartment that exploded, became the number one Asian fusion restaurant in L of LA. We went legit. Uh, then we became a pop-up. Then we became another pop-up. Then we quit. Then I got a book deal. Then I got on TV. And then we opened Buck Mash. And now, uh, now I'm just broke in the middle of uh, the pandemic of COVID-19, just sitting around cooking, cleaning, and, uh, you know, Having a shitty time like everyone else. Can you tell us about Button Mash and sort of how it started, and then sort of the past few years and and that whole process? Because uh, I want to I want to lead up to the the point of the last few weeks of it closing down. Um. So <clears throat> after we after our apartment, we had a lunch restaurant and it's all Starry Kitchen and our legit lunch restaurant. It got us like in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Food and Wine. It was fucking nuts. Was that and the one in downtown? Is the one downtown in Bunker Hill, across from the the downtown Mocha and where now the Broad is. And uh, we, you know, I was I was at my grandmother's place, and everyone but Jung has re relatives in uh, Westminster. So, and I know that I remember that. Like Jung's the only Vietnamese person that doesn't have relatives in Westminster. I did, but um, my really? she passed away. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. Now that's the first time I've heard that. Oh man! <laughs> oh man, that is rough. That is. Yeah, man. I'm just this. This pandemic is bringing out the worst in me. I don't want to know. Um, it's okay. So sorry, I interrupted you. I, no, that that was a. I am sorry. I will then. I will. I'll fix that fact by saying I have one friend that is now a relative because she passed away <laughs> from Westminster. I'm going to add that. Thank you. Um, Nung Um 
And I had a fan that basically emailed me a seven page email and saying, we're really big fans of yours. We've been going around barcades across the country and we want to open our own. And we noticed that none of them have any good food. And we figured we'd open one, one with good food and the one up that make it Asian food. We thought you guys would be a great partner. And I replied back with one line and said, yeah, let's do it. And that was the end of that. And Wait, that we, was we go around and, and, and just trash all the other arcade restaurants real quick. Like, let's just let's just go through all of them, like start with 82 and then we'll go through. Uh, um, well, eight, Mini Boss not, and... well, 80 is not a restaurant. So that's the thing. So that's a good example. Uh, that's not it's okay. like a bar and they have food trucks to come in sometimes. Um, Barcade is actually open from New York from uh, God. What's the, what's the what's the hipster capital in New York? Was it called again? Williamsburg. Yeah, it's from Williamsburg. Um, they opened in Highland Park. They're so, but you no, know, they, they serve bar food. It's different. Like they serve gastropub food. We serve Asian food. Um, so there have you been to Mini Boss up here in San Jose. Uh, is Mini Boss in downtown? Yeah, it's downtown. It's Vietnamese owned too. It is. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, my oh, buddy Dan Pan. It has. No, I've not been in it. I saw it. It has a really cool like central bar in the middle of it, right? Yeah, and um, then in the back, it's got a kitchen called Super Good Kitchen. No, I didn't. I was getting, I was getting a, a fish and chips at a place across the street, so I didn't go in. So I feel bad that place now. Down. <gasps> City Grill. I think so. Yeah, I think I walked by it a few months ago. I'm pretty sure. That, I think it's Indian now. I'm pretty sure it's an Indian is, restaurant now. Let man, me double this, check before you freak out. <laughs> this year, did you really like it? You're on the verge of freaking out. <laughs> Did you really like it? Is was it good, dude? It's really good. It's fucking fantastic. I've never, I've never been there. No, I, mean, I, I remember. I told you, it's like it's like a foot long fish and chips. Yes. And it, it's like, what are they? It's they're they have this dip that's like curry, like yogurt, and it was just amazing. It's like it's really good value for like under ten dollars. You get like three, like. It's three fish and chips. They're like, oh, under 10 bucks, it's got to be really shitty. And it's really big. I'm like, oh, it's got to be really shitty. And you eat it. It's like, oh, my God, this is not shitty. This is so yeah. good. It's like big. It's tasty. It's flavorful. It's unctuous. This is like such a San Jose deep cut. You're talking to two guys who grew up in San Jose. We've never heard of this place. No, I've, I've <laughs> heard of it. I walked by it. I think I've had it once. But if it's the one I'm thinking about, then it might have gotten replaced with either an, uh, an Argentinian empanada place or... An Indian place, but let me double check. I don't want to turn in my San Jose card, which I I got back a few years ago, but I'll double check. What's the name of that uh, fish and chips chain? Uh, that that one, City Grill. No, no, no. It's like something initial, something oh. initial. Oh well, no, there's there's all oh, you mean eight 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 salt chi- salt and chips. That'd be funny if it got replaced with what by by one of those. <laughs> you you should you should ask Justin Lin because he's like the pro. He's like he's like the master of H salt and chips. He knows he knows more about it than anyone else does. Oh wow. Because his mom, his mom used to run one. Oh, oh wow! That's so, yeah, that's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. His mom ran an H, uh, an H salt fish and chips in Orange County. Fish and chips go a long way in the Asian Asian uh, culture. After you got contacted by uh, the button mash guys, how did you? How did that work out? How did you well, stuff a Vietnamese restaurant in the middle of an arcade? That's in in the middle of like a hipster mecca like Echo Park too. Well, well, we we were on the ground up in terms of the design and the creation of it, so we didn't have to stuff it. That was the best part of it. We 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 just kind of married each other, right? My wife, him, his wife, his partner. We all oh, kind of got in bed. Yeah, it was, it was groovy. Sounds really groovy. 
It's do, really do you like video games. Are you a video game head? Is, is that the term for it? I yeah. I I have six hundred games head at to home. things. <laughs> Just generally <laughs> add head to things. Yeah. You add you add head. You love yeah. to give head. Yeah. I, I I very much appreciate that. I will, but I will not reciprocate today. So, um, I am. A, I have six hundred games at home. I'm a big video game nerd. I have a lot. I set from the NES up until the PS3. Including like the Neo Geo, a Turbo Duo, Turbo Graphic. Oh, man, Some, somebody had some money growing up. No, I didn't. I didn't have. No, I didn't have any hey, money Dad, growing Daddy, up. Daddy, can you buy me Samurai Showdown? Daddy, that's true. How did you oh. afford all these? No, so I bought when I, so when I was a dot comer back in college, when I started working, it was at the time when none of those and all those games were worth nothing, and I bought everything I wanted as a kid. When I was a kid, I didn't. My parent, I got the NES a year after it was dead. Or like a beer before it was dead. So everyone else already had it and everyone was buying like a Super Nintendo. I got the NES when that was happening. So my parents didn't really give me much. And then we, you know, my parents like managed 7-Elevens when I was growing up. They weren't rich at all. So, um, but then when I started working, I was like, I'm going to buy all these games. Like, and I just started collecting them and I bought them for cheap. And now they're all worth like thousands of dollars. And I don't want to sell them because I don't care about that money. I want my games. Nice. Now I feel bad about making fun of you. Because I was going to go I was going to do a whole thing about like, fuck you, mom and dad. Now I'm old enough. I'm going to get my own Neo Geo games. Yeah, but I, I'm not going to do that. Were, weren't you, Ruban, weren't you one of the kids that had like a, the, what's the Turbo Graphics, like the handheld one? What was that That's, called? I, I mean, do you have 20 minutes to talk about this? But I mean, but my, you, had, my, you, you had one when you were a kid though, probably, right? So, so the Turbo thing is my parents, yeah. my parents ran a Vietnamese, my parents ran a video game shop, a used video game oh. shop at the Berryessa Flea Market in San Jose for 10 years. And everybody bought Nintendo, Sega, everything. But all these people would bring in stuff that no one wanted. But because I I had plenty of time to play video games, I got into the really deep cut stuff. And so the, people would come in and, and try to sell TurboGrafx stuff. And everyone's like, we can't sell this stuff. So then I was the kid that bought it all. And so I was just buying up Turbo Expresses, Turbo Duos, everything. And then realizing that it was going for like triple online. And so if you Google my old dad, my dad's old email address, which I'm not going to say, you, you see me in all of these like deep, like these, they're still on, they're all text only. We were like selling, trading, buying stuff. All the stuff is worth like thousands of dollars now, but I sold everything like 10 years ago. Anyway, oh. we're talking way too much about TurboGrafx-16. <laughs> Dude, I love TurboGrafx-16. The mini TurboGrafx-16 is coming out in a month. But I think I think you answered I think you answered sufficiently answered uh, the question of whether or not you like video whether whether or not you're a video game head. The answer is yes. Yeah. Yes. What's what's your favorite game at 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 Button Mash? It changes a lot because we have like a hundred games and we rotate fifty in all the time. Um, my favorite game might be, you know what? It's probably Ghouls, the actual ar arcade version of Ghouls and Ghosts. Wow, that's you are definitely a Neo Geo guy. If you're like, it's the arcade version because only only like poor people play the the Genesis version, the ones that everybody else grew up with. Well, I played that. I, it's just it just it just sounds better. It looks better. It sounds better. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that pause there. <laughs> I'm not gonna edit that out. That's that's okay. me. That's me and Jill judging you. It's fine. Don't worry. Just about just it. mostly like twenty eighty percent you, twenty percent me. But I judge him all the time. So that's fine. I'm I'm, I'm unapologetic. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, of smugness, I wanted to ask you specifically <laughs> what it's like being a Vietnamese American restauranteur. Like, what does it mean making Vietnamese food for you know? Last time I was there, bearded hipsters who are you know, probably not exposed to Vietnamese food. Honestly, like I, I think it's the best Vietnamese food I had 
in Los Angeles City, north of Orange Wait. County. Wait, you were talking about our? I had you're my birthday there, birthday? yeah. Oh, was that, you? was that you? That was him. That was him. Yeah. His, his 40th oh, birthday was there. I, I saw the pictures. You looked a whole lot more drunk, so I didn't recognize you. But now I see it. Let me wait, wait. That's sober. not true because I'm drunk right now. Uh, you look like you have it more together now than you did before. Yeah, totally fucked I'll up take... right now. Sorry. Um, how does it feel? I mean, let me just say this: like, what I does we it don't mean? get hurt. What does it mean? What does well, it mean we, to you? We, we, we have to step back because I don't think it's it's Vietnamese food. Like, there's a lot of Vietnamese food because that's our background, but we consider it Pan Asian. But to be a Vietnamese restaurateur chef. Uh, the hard part is, is that I, I mean, it makes me proud because I, I don't think I had a lot of as many outside of Tommy Vu and big boob white women and uh, selling real estate on commercials. They, like, he was like the only, and, and then Dustin Wing, right? Dustin Wing and Tommy Vu. Those are my only two like Vietnamese uh, role models growing up. Um, one is much cooler than one. One hung out with Johnny Depp. One didn't. Right. And uh, that's all I had. So, you know, I, I feel really proud. I feel really lucky because I get to represent that in the media and just be myself. And, and you know, and I actually spell my name out N-G-U-I-E-N and people have to pronounce that and learn what how it actually is pronounced. At least at least an American phonetization of it. Is this a diss well, against Dat Nguyen, the famous great Dallas cowboy who always went around saying that his last name was pronounced W-I-N? No, it's not. No, no. I mean, I grew up with wins, so like I had to. No, and that wasn't. That was. I was. I was in college when Dat Win played for the Cowboys. The only. The only diss I'll give Dat Win is when he. When when he stopped playing football, <laughs> he used to do these these insurance commercials in Dallas, and then they'd be like, "Is like, is it the lowest uh, insurance price?" He'd be like, "That's right." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, Dat, Dat, what have we come to? I had so much respect for you. Please." He was. Don't... He was retired at this time. He was retired. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's just like desperate for money. <laughs> I mean, but it's not like it's not like that was even the slogan when he was playing football. Like I, I remember watching. His, I mean, um, and look, these commentators are you know tend to be not very POC friendly, so they could have played that joke all the time. And I don't remember hearing that. So that was his. I mean, maybe that was his internal joke for him later on to make money. I don't know. If your name is a pun, I mean, and you you can make money off of it, come on. I mean, why not? Why not? My name is Bang. If anybody wants to use it as a pun and will give me cash, I'm here. Does that work on Tinder, by the way? <laughs> your I, name. I, I don't think it did because it seemed like a joke. I don't want to say what I go by Tinder, but I go by something else. I did. I mean, I went. I went by something else. I'm sorry. That was supposed to be past tense. Samuel. I'm Samuel. Samuel from San Jose. I've never Not met a, Sam, a Vietnamese Jose. Samuel. Have you? That doesn't seem like a Vietnamese name. Yeah, but because because they're always uh they always go by Sammy. Oh, Sammy. Uh, that sounds right. like a poker name. Sammy Sammy Nguyen. Yeah, if I was playing poker somewhere, yeah. I yeah. would go by Sammy Nguyen. Yeah, Sammy Nguyen. I'm sorry. I'd put my money on Sammy Nguyen if I had money. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So you were saying that you didn't have a lot of Vietnamese role models growing up, right? But do you? Since you've been in the game for so long, to like a lot of acclaim, you you have an awesome cook, cookbook out. Uh, Jonathan Gold, always big up to you guys, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine that you 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 now are in a position of being 
someone that's admired and looked up to uh, in the Vietnamese by younger Vietnamese Americans who want to make it in the culinary food industry, right? Uh, have you have you had those moments where people like are like, hey, because of you, I got into food, or you know? Uh, well, I'll put that in two compartments. The Vietnamese thing. I mean, don't it, let me clarify that I wear a banana suit. I throw a lot of double entendres. I go fucking nuts on people. And I still somehow get people coming up to me and be like, you know, I'm so happy that you're Vietnamese. It makes me so proud to be Vietnamese and you're out there. I'm like, I, I, I wear a banana suit. Is that still cool? Like, yeah, we know. We know. So, you know, that 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 makes me that that's very flattering um on top of that as far as the cooking yeah we get a lot of like i remember um i have a lot of people that leave their jobs to go pursue whatever they their dream is and it's not always cooking but sometimes that people leave their like i remember how to she was a writer on um god what was that christian it was it was it was called that bitch in um apartment 205 or something like that yeah christian ritter 33 yeah, Kristen Ritter. Yeah, so one one of the staff writers, Korean American, she had read about us. She stopped. She stopped writing. She started cooking for me for like two years. Amazing. Because she was so, wow. she was so inspired by our story. Like, there's that. Like, you know, a lot of chefs that you know, like um, you know Charles Olalia. So the guy named Charles Olalia, he used to be yeah, a rice bar. Yeah. So I I helped inspire rice bar. Awesome. And now Mamser. Yeah, I didn't I didn't ins- in, in, inspire Mamser, but I am very appreciative of it. Well, in the in the in the chef, like uh, you know how like the you don't really follow sports, I know, but there's a thing, there's a term called coaching tree. But you know what I'm talking about, where one coach, a head coach, mm-hmm. hires a bunch of assistants, and those assistants end up becoming head coaches, and they have their own assistants, right? So it becomes like a tree, right? So in a way, you you're like you're a tree for, I think, a lot of Asian American chefs. I, yes, maybe. I mean, I yeah. Well. Part of it is because we... Whether directly think, or indirectly, I think, maybe. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, I realize the history of our... Because our, we've done so much crazy shit and we've pushed through and we've been so fortunate. You know, we were first the laughing stock of the LA food scene, but when that was also when the LA food scene had no respect in the country. But as LA started getting respect nationally and we were making our ascent, people started... We started gaining more respect and notice because we were still around and they were realizing that, you know, outside of all the crazy shit I do, like we're still operating a restaurant and we were still kind of evolving with the city. And, and you know, Jonathan Gold, you know, rest in peace. He, you know, he gave us, gave us more notice than anyone else would. Like who would else would give a Vietnamese guy that wears a banana suit and double drops double entendres like front the front page on the la times that's fucking nuts yeah. wait a second i just want to point out that you just totally trashed the la food scene when they trashed you you just basically said the whole la LAC food scene was trash that was pretty awesome no but, i didn't think they were trash they I, thought they thought they thought they thought we were the joke but i know i'm not saying that out of spite though like I, I i appreciate that like we were like who are these yahoos that started out of the apartment that didn't go to school for food or anything else now, what is this all about? And he wears a banana suit. Like, who's this guy? That's, but that's my second point is, can you explain the banana suit thing? Like, you've been throwing it around like everybody knows what you're talking about. What's so, going on here? Well, it is part of your brand. It is part of your brand, though. So it's a literal look, banana suit. It's not, yeah. like, it's not like something you metaphorically put on as a child and like it actually exists. It's something you bought online. Here's, a, here's the funny fucking thing about it. I'm a big anime fan, but I've never cosplayed before this. 
Like I've been watching anime since 1989. I'm old as fuck now. Ooh, but I have a great I have a great rapid fire anime related question for you later. Okay, okay, okay. You you hold that. You hold that. You hold that in your pants. Keep it warm for me. It's already um, there. Okay. The banana suit. So I used to work in film. I worked on a film directed by a guy named Dave Boyle called White on Rice. There is an actress, a Japanese American actress by the name of Joy Osmansky. And in the movie, she wears a banana suit and her character is officially called Banana Girl. And when I helped sell this film, eventually we realized we had to self-release it and promote it in cities. And I asked Dave at one point in time, I don't know why out of the blue, I was like, Dave, can I have that banana suit? He's like, why? It's like, I don't know, but I feel compelled to do shit in it. And I started crashing parades, get on TV, like crashing college campuses. And there was a realization that came to is that it's the least creepy outfit you can wear. And people somehow get it and they'll just gravitate towards you instead of questioning what it is. And that was magic. And then when I went into the food business, I just realized that I was going to wear it at one point in time. And I did. And I wore it at the Rose Bowl at the second LA Food Fest. And we went viral. And I just realized, fuck it. I'm just going to wear this. I'm going to have a megaphone. I'm going to wear a sign that says, please enjoy our balls in your mouth. Because we have this dish called the Crispy Tofu Balls. And that's First the double I, entendre. First time I ever encountered you, you were wearing, you were wearing a banana suit in uh, Far East Plaza, where uh, Howling Rays is now. Yeah, yeah you, you, missed, you, I, but you, missed, you missed the note that you usually tell other people. Because you usually say, yeah, I met this guy. And he was yelling at me. Uh, at my face. That's usually what you say, Jim. I, I, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that as spite. I'm just saying that that's that's a that's a minor detail that I I notice. You tell other you people. You notice. You notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true though. You were screaming at me <laughs> in a banana suit. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 made up nothing about that story. It's all true. So, but but it's it's become synonymous with the business, and it's also you know, how about let me put it this way, you know. So me and my wife are Shari Kitchen. A lot of people don't know that me and my wife, we debate about food like every fucking moment when we're not in the kitchen, we're not in the restaurant. But I don't think when people eat our food, they need to take it seriously. And the banana suit is a simple way to get people just to drop that bullshit and just give the, give the food a try. And if they do want to be serious about it, I'm happy to talk about that. But seriously, dude, just fucking put it in your mouth and enjoy it. Those are words of wisdom to live by, I think. I mean, we're. I mean, we're not gonna get Michelin stars, but I, I have like a couple of Michelin tires if that helpful. <laughs> Do you think like the having the banana suit also a lot? Because I, I, I think you have a really great, exuberant, like vibrant personality. But do you think wearing the banana suit allows you to be more ridiculous and crazy too, or is, is it like it just sort of channels that that inner energy that you have already? All of the above. I, I, I consider it just a piece of cloth I put over it. But it's just like, like literally people's, like, I mean, this is the two looks you'll get on people's faces. They, they usually light up or you get this look of like utter confusion. Like, what the fuck is that? And, uh, you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, you got, you know, you gotta kind of break the norm. And I look, man, like the restaurant business is so hard. And when I, when we first got into it, I thought we were going to fail. So I was more like, if I'm going to fail, I'm just going to have a lot of fucking fun doing it. Because at least if I tried, I can be like, look, dude, I went fucking nuts and it didn't work. So I'm a horrible restaurateur and that's all right. I can move on with my life. And somehow we're still around and somehow we're still relevant 11 years later. Weird. And how are things going now? Like we really want to sort of see what's going on right now. 
I think we're all really concerned about all of our favorite restaurants, especially the neighborhood ones, mom and pop ones that we just the ones that are that we go to definitely for comfort food whenever we need some. So if we, as an analogy, if, if we actually keep that uh, in the beginning about the, what I think the difference between a pandemic and epidemic is, um, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an, a, there is an, an approximate estimate that people, that they think that 30% of the restaurants in the country are going to drop out completely because of this, which is a huge number, right? And let, let's just use the city of, yeah, let's, let's just use the city of Los Angeles, which approximately has 30,000 restaurants. Right, so that means about nine thousand of the thirty thousand are not going to come back. I prefer not to get political, but I don't take kindly to the president's quote about he thinking these restaurants will come back or they'll come back as different concepts or under different ownership. Different ownership, I understand that might happen as different concepts. They're not going to come back as different concepts. They're just not going to come back. And but it's it's for so many different reasons. One is finances. I, but I think there's another one that people, they won't know unless they've been in the shoes of a restaurateur, is that when you're in the day-to-day of a restaurant, unless you've been doing it for years and decades, even if it's tough and even even if it is, nets really, like if you're netting 6%, you know, grosses, if you're netting 6%, you're, 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 really, you're, you're almost at the average of the country, right? Which is really low, right? But there's also another part of it, you get used to it. And what happens is, is that that becomes your day-to-day life. And what happens, what's happening now is this has disrupted that routine for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people are going to come back, not going to come back when they realize, shit, that this is bad for my health. I don't want to do that anymore. Like, why have I been doing that? Right. I think that's going to be, people are going to come to the realization, a lot of restaurateurs and chefs are like, you know what, I think I can move on and do something else. And and partially because of the necessity to make money. So that's, you know, they're going to have to make money and live, you know, regardless of the different EDD, you know, unemployment kind of like, you know, and care packages out there. Yeah, I was going to bring those up. Yeah, there's a lot. Like the city of LA is offering um, a mi- micro loans. yeah. Up, up to 20,000. Not very big. Uh, yeah, up to 20,000. Let, let's just say button mash, butt matches rent is a low seven figure number, right? So that that microloan, and I'm not trying to throw it in Garcetti's face. I think it's very admirable, but all that's not going to be enough for a lot of these restaurants to come back because we also have to figure out, you know, the staff and how to take care of the staff and how to hire them back. Look, I, I will give the president one one nod. Is like I don't know if it, like people will come back as different concepts, but I think they will change their style of service. Like we we had to lay off 30 people. You know what? And I I'm not necessarily speaking for us, but like if I were to lay off that many people and then let's say three months from now, we're barely alive, but we can barely afford 30 people. We're going to probably figure out how many people we can afford and then change the style of service based on what we can afford just so we can, you know, stay above water or like just barely skim it. I'm on four different support groups on WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, email, and every day, every minute, every second, Every restaurateur is just freaking out about what to do. And we're trying to band together. And most of that is most of that is to push what's happening in Washington and to make sure that we're part of the different care and recovery packages. And it seems like we are part of that now, but not not as much as we'd like. But you know, it's support because everyone's like mostly they're like, what do we do? Like like last night someone's 
I mean, this sounds simple. Like, what do we do where we're still out there? We need to make money. What is the protocol? What is the FDA saying about the protocol of handling food? But the funny thing is, and the FDA is not saying much. So I just tell them, look, you need to follow the CDC on this. Like, you know, this stuff lives on cardboard for 24 hours. This stuff lives on plastic for two to three days. You know, my, my suggestion is no hands, touch anything, gloves on everything, um, sanitize everything as stainless steel. Um, everyone wears a mask, cooking, delivering, handling. And that may seem extreme, but, you know, if we're skimming and if, if we're barely, if we're barely, we're barely, we're, we're not, we're not even above water. We're barely surviving. Getting someone, if, if we get someone sick because one of our guys that's delivering gets someone sick and that comes back and it will because they're trying to trace where COVID-19 is coming from, that's going to totally shut down a restaurant. And it's not, doesn't even have to happen. I mean, I just heard my parents talk about a rumor of delivery food in Orange County giving somebody yeah. COVID. And so like, I mean, I try to trace it back to where it came from. They're like, oh, it's your aunt's college friend. And that's only like two people away, but you know, there's nothing online. There's nothing like it just needs like a murmur of a rumor before people are like, no more Vietnamese food, Vietnamese food in Orange County or no more Korean food in Koreatown. Remember that for two weeks? Jeez. Oh, yeah. The one they dispelled where the, the, the flight attendant stopped by. Yeah, there's a really hungry flight attendant who can't find Korean barbecue in Korea, went on a binge in Koreatown in L.A. for a week and ate at just five different barbecue places within two days. Like, yeah. It was ridiculous. It was also the reason why I went to your restaurant instead of Koreatown, but yeah, I remember. I remember. But look, I here here's the thing. This is this is a disruption in daily life. And we're as a restaurant, we we thrive on routine business. And you've broken the routine. So you've broken the flow of income, but you're also breaking the ecosystem that supports us. So that's the other thing that we can't anticipate is okay, so the restaurant is the face to consumers, right? But then we have vendors, right? We have farmers, um, we have paper vendors, um, we have you know cleaning, you know units. We have like we have meat vendors. Like how many of those people are going to be able to survive, right? And let's say our you know look, we're very particular about our recipes. If our vendors don't survive and we can't pe find people to replace them, is that that might be a potential reason not to come back. I'm just saying, saying, and theoretically, like, like if there's less vendors and to serve a much larger population, but we we aren't sure about them, like, there's so many variables that that veer on the side of not coming back. And it's not to say most of most of the restaurateurs want to come back, but we're just faced with so many roadblocks. Today is a new roadblock, right? A lot of the restaurants, uh, the term now has been serving like selling food out of their kitchens as, as as just in the ingredients as pantries um but the health department is, is cracking down as of yesterday and you know my argument for that yeah because we that don't was, have grocery that's license. interesting that's an interesting situation because it was actually not what garcetti wanted but he had to he has to abide by the health department but he spoke yeah he spoke out he against that decision but and my my and no so here's, here's my gen general argument so in french in french cuisine there's a dish called crudité, which is basically just raw vegetable. There is literally not, it, it's a cut raw vegetable on a plate. So why is it I can serve you a crudité and charge like $16, $20, but I can't serve you the actual raw ingredient uh, that's untouched. And by the way, I think restaurants are under, I mean, generally speaking, 
higher scrutiny than most grocery stores because you know there's a lot of hands that touch that food that I would like to think that most kitchens, at least in the city of Los Angeles, will handle those ingredients the same way they would handle it if they were serving it too. So, you know, I, I get it. The health department is cracking down because they need to make sure it's not a it's not a slippery slope that when when and if we come back from this, that people don't keep on doing this. Um, but you know, we also the 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 other side of that is we have ingredients that aren't available in grocery stores. We have access to that kind of stuff, and we can give that to the community. And it's a mutually beneficial situation, but it's being disrupted for regulation, which again, I don't totally, I'm not totally against, but it needs to be fixed because, you know, I'm seeing on Instagram and Facebook all the time, like, hey, is garlic out? I can't get eggs. You know, I can't get toilet paper. I don't get the but, reasoning behind them not being able to sell it though. I mean, if you got, if you just started a restaurant and you had a, a retail grocery store as part of it. I mean, you could do that, right? I mean, you can just get zoned for that. I mean, it's easier to get. Yeah, you you said it's easier to get what? It's it's easier to get a retail zoning than it is to get a restaurant license. There are different licenses. And, you know, someone online put it in a way that it's kind of like dealing with the mob or how Trump is kind of like saying, like, he's he's only going to call the state, the governors that have treated them nice. They think that's what the health department is doing right now. There's like, look, we need to make sure you're listening to us and then we'll, then we'll let you, you know, as long as we say you can do it, you can do it, but wait until we do until then don't. And who's, 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 who's making that conjecture? That, that's, that, that's just in my support groups. Mm -hmm. That that was at least a version of that. Like that's, that's the, the analysis of it, but then that's, that's, that's neither, that's neither fact or, or based on anything, but that's just, that's I mean, it's probably emotional analysis, to be honest with you. So, I mean, we can go, we can go on for this for hours because I'm a planner and I can totally see how you can actually carve out a retail side of things in the restaurant easily. And I don't even see why this is a health department issue. This should be a planning side of things. But I mean, this is just me talking. I think, but. I think, well, one of the, one of the reasons also is these, there are certainly restaurants that have car- carved out space for retail, right? like Zinc Cafe in the Arts District. But then a lot of the restaurants um, that have been selling out of their pantry, they don't have that. So maybe they don't have that. They don't have that. They don't have that infrastructure or like that. that what if you served it on a dish, like a disposable dish <laughs> and just throw salt? Sure, on maybe. Here's salt on your pineapple. Well, this is actually, this, rem- um, this reminds me of uh, something I was just thinking about. Like, okay, so the stimulus package and all the relief that's available to restaurants, notwithstanding... Um, being selling out of your pantry, but then that that being shut down by the health department, notwithstanding, what are some other things that you're seeing restaurants do to be a little bit more creative to try to make money uh, during this time? The main things are delivery and takeout. Delivery and takeout. Are, are you guys doing that right now? Yeah, we yeah we we always have done delivery and takeout. So the the crux of it is that the restaurants that have been doing delivery and takeout prior to the quarantine. Um, have at least been able to figure out a lifeline with that. For businesses that haven't, it's really tough on them because they didn't have that, uh, you know, kind of reputation in place. And honestly, fine dining restaurants—they're—they're—they're they're, they're not. They're like just shut down because um, you know not, now's not the time for luxury, um, and you're not gonna get a delivery anyway. Um, there's a great re- there's a restaurant in Seattle I read about. It's fine dining. It's really well known, but I can't think of it. They realized this really early on, and they shut down immediately that weekend for the first weekend of quarantine. Then they re- reconcepted it 
um, into three concepts for the community. For the community, there was like a donut shop, a diner, and something else, and a fried chicken like family pack. Yeah, and they're like, but they were like, look, we realize that fine dining is not what the community needs, and during this, and we want to survive, but we want to give the community what they need, and not not just because we want to serve, you know, fine expensive food. That's very resourceful. So we're going to shut down the restaurant. It is very resourceful. So you have that. There's not really much of anything else to be honest with you. Like everyone's just fighting for, you know, the, the tax credits don't necessarily, I mean, those make sense if we, we survive, right? The, look, they're, with the certain loans they have, I can't, you know, Jim can probably help me with the term on this, but if, if you don't repay it, there's, there's clauses on, on uh, leniency on, yeah, forgiveness. Yeah, well, there's two. There's two. There's two specific loans. There's the SBA disaster loan, right, where you can mm. get up to, I believe, two million with two hundred thousand and above. That would have to be personally guaranteed. No loans would be forgiven, but you can pay over like thirty years, right? Um, the the loan that was in the, the stimulus package that was introduced is called the uh, payroll protect uh, payment payment protection plan, and that that mm-hmm. loan um, you can. Is, is meant to, for for businesses to use for payroll, overhead like rent, utilities, and stuff, right? And that has a forgiveness uh, component. So, any 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 part of the loan that is not forgiven, you I believe have to pay like a three percent interest loan back in like ten years. Yeah. Or something. So both are like quite favorable um, for businesses. I think um, you know I've been advising a lot of my clients about these loans and the other resources that are available. And actually, I just heard a podcast with um, you guys know the JJ Reddick podcast. He, JJ, mm. so JJ Reddick, he's a basketball player, but he's a big foodie. He has chefs on all the time. And he had a guy today um, from um, a couple, I guess he has a couple of restaurants in, in Williamsburg. And they were talking about like how they would have to leverage the stimulus package in order to pay their employees so that, you know, they wouldn't have to go through the same situation that that you guys did, right? And having to lay all these people off because that's, yeah. I mean, I get it. I'm a business owner. If I have to imagine like laying people off, it's it's not a great feeling. Oh, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't mention, but this isn't even our effort. Is we have our friends that are starting the, the crowdfunding campaign. Oh, cool. Yeah, a GoFundMe. To yeah, to to pay our staff to hopefully survive through this, so they can come back whenever this hopefully ends. So, but that was that was started by like basically friends and friends. You know, it wasn't even. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't started by us at all. So, I mean, outside of delivery, I mean, oh, you know what? I mean, negotiating with uh, landlords—that's yeah. pretty, pretty much the last part of it. Yeah. Um, our landlord not budging. The only short kind of shining light is that you know Garcetti is put a moratorium on, on evictions until the end of May, right? So, yeah. but then June first. I mean, everything's due on June first, then, right? For the time being, well, no, th- this no. is the way we- there's the, he's the, he announced it today. So there's a moratorium in evictions, and if you can't pay right now, you still have to pay the landlords. You have 12 months to basically pay them back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, what what we're afraid of though is that the landlord tack on penalty fees, and mm-hmm. then we may have to we may have to take them to court and just like like what is the the path of least crappy resistance. That's the hardest part about it. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot more variables that I can I can articulate in a short podcast, but and you know, I'm just I'm just a partner in it. So my the the owners the you know, are you know, the day day-to-day operators, they're stressing out about it and we're talking about it every day. So, 
I know we've been talking about the business itself and the owners. What does this mean to the workers? I mean, you're you laid off thirty people. Are they? Do you expect some of them to come back? Do you? Are they looking for other jobs? Or, I mean, they're the ones that are probably going to struggle the most in the long term. I'd assume. Here's here's my answer to that. I want them to do what's best for them. I don't want because like we don't know how long this is going to take. Like I would love for them to come back, but I need them to be. I need them to take care of themselves and not, I don't mean that in the sense that in the sense that you're on your own as much as if they find an opportunity and I've, I've sent some things like for opportunities for cooks and other things like that, like at hospitals and such, like that is not obviously a very ideal situation, but if they have to make income, like it's all I can give them. And, you know, I, I want them to take care of themselves. And when, whenever there's an upswing, I would love for them to come back, but if they find themselves comfortable in another place, then, you know, I can't fault them for that at all. So I, I wish everyone the best and we, we, we hope people will come back, but we really just want people to take care of themselves and survive and not have to endure kind of the, I don't know, the stress that comes with just managing income and now lack of income too. So there, there's a precedent for this. And I, I sort of went through it in the last, um, the last recession in 2009, which was basically caused by the housing market. And essentially what happened was an entire generation, entire cohort of planners, architects, developers, mortgage brokers, like everybody just left the field and never came back. And that's probably, I would say like 30% of why we're in a, a we've been in a housing crisis for the past 12 years, because we lost an entire generation of people that went to school for that, were in school for it, were about to go to school for it, went through college, were doing it for years and years. And now a lot of them, maybe they went to become chefs. Who knows? Like it sucks to be, would suck to be that architect that decided to become a, a chef right now um, and go through another recession. But it just seems like an entire generation was lost. And so I don't want to be the doom and gloom of this, but it seems like the restaurant industry is not going to be the same after this or is going to be building up. What What would you say? What would you say? I don't think I don't know if we specifically answered this, but just if we wanted to help one particular local restaurant that we have, I know is is actually buying a gift certificate helpful. I mean, I keep hearing that, but they the the piper still has to be paid, right? If we buy a hundred dollar gift certificate, does that actually help? Buying a hundred dollar gift certificate helps a lot because the idea is you're going to redeem it when we're open again. So it's basically like like an advance. It helps a lot because. You know, it's it's a cash advance basically that we'll make good on, assuming we're still open. That, I mean, it's better than buying a ten dollar meal. I mean, a ten dollar meal is not bad at all, and that obviously helps too. But gift certificates are, you know, it's like think think of it like a bond. It's like it's like a it's like a short term bond. That's basically what it is. So, and if enough people buy a hundred dollar gift certificate, like. It, let's say we're in a city of like what's I mean, who knows what the new census will come with, but like let's say we're still six million people. You know, if we just have a hundred people, which you know, that's a lot, but like a hundred people buy a hundred dollar bond, that's that's a lot of money. You know what right, that's ten grand. That almost gets us pay rent. I've seen something that's interesting. Some restaurants, what they've done is um they do they do uh, offer um a way for their their customers or their fans to either donate money to a fund to support their staff and uh, in return those donors get uh, a share of the profits of the business through the end of the year once the business opens again, right? So I think there's there's certainly some like financial uh, options that might be available, like some creative like ways to like you know um, get to get like a cash infusion right now. It's sort of like raising money for like a startup or whatever. You know, you 
you have the money, you spend it right now, you have some sort of like runway to operate at some point, and then you uh, offer those people like some sort of profit share. Yeah, it's like a bridge loan, basically. Correct, yeah. But you know, can I give you one perspective on this, though? Of course. I This is very stressful. It's very catastrophic. I feel really bad for my colleagues. But the parallel to this is that you know, Star Kitchen was born out of the fall of the economy. I mean, and I, I tell this to people, too, that are like on, in my support groups, especially there are a lot of people that were about to open a restaurant right before this. And they are so fucking confused about what to do because they have literally no brand. They're starting to pay rent. They, you know, they spent or raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars to build out a restaurant and they don't know what to do. And, you know, considering how we started, I'm like, my kind of silver lining is like, look, someone will figure out how to be resourceful and convert this. You just have to kind of push through it and be creative about it. And I don't mean in an exploitative way. I think that's it's not meant in that. But like there are gonna be new there are gonna be new stars and new heroes that come out of this and new routines too. So like, you know, I like this is this isn't off the cuff, but like I personally think not knowing enough about the real estate market, but I think commercial real estate will change for a long time because a lot of offices will realize, shit, why do I need all my employees to come in when a lot of them now work from home? Because now we have the work. We have, we've set the workflow for people to work from home. You don't need a 20,000 square foot space anymore, right? I think a lot of this will change. There'll be good that comes from it. We won't see all of it until later. But I think for a lot of restaurants that are, I mean, they're forced to be nimble. I think a lot of them will, not a lot of them, but I think there are some people that will come out ahead or at least come out come out on top a little bit and you know, kind of also pick up as many people as possible in that process. And I don't know who those people will be, but I, I look forward to that because I don't, you know, I think people are resilient um, despite um, kind of catastrophic, you know, circumstances. There was a recent David Chang article uh, in the New York Times about uh, sort of the restaurant industry moving forward. Uh, do you have any thoughts about it? I know. David Chang has been a voice for this entire generation, at least from from the outsider perspective, not in the industry. But so I, I honestly, there's so many articles out there. I saw that, but I didn't read it yet. So if you can if you can summarize it for me, then I can I can respond to that. That'll help me a lot. Yeah, he, he basically said that he doesn't believe the restaurant and service industry will survive without like significant government intervention. Huh. I don't think it will survive. I don't think it will survive at the levels at at what the norm was prior to this. I don't think there's any way it's going to survive. I think, honestly, I think the drop-off rate will be higher than 30%. Um, I think every week this keeps on going on. And I mean, now we have a date. We have a different date, right? Like now it's extended to April 30th right now. Dude, that's one month from now. That's, yeah. that is a very long time. It's also enough time to make a decision just to be like, you know what? That's too, this is too much stress. It's also like my friend, Andy Ricker, he shut down Poc Poc in, uh, in LA, in Portland. Oh, in Portland too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he shut he shut it down. I mean, I and it's funny because in my support groups, they they were debating about it for a little bit. But I appreciate why he shut it down because he doesn't want to put his employees at risk. Like there, there, there is not a good decision in any of this. Yeah. Right. Do you do do you do you try to keep the business and and you know the the ecosystem of the business and the investors happy? Do you take care of your staff? 
can you take care of your staff or do you just take care of your staff by not putting them in harm's way? Like everything, like, I'm sorry I haven't read David Chang's article. It's literally, I'm just reading so many articles that it's it's almost too depressing, but I agree with all of it. Can we break down the sort of what you think? I mean, 30% is a lot, but can you break down what it means to us? Is Are they going to be... Are they going to be replaced? Are they? Are any of them going to be chain restaurants? Are they all mom and pops? Are they ones that are sort of, are there generally a category that you could see would be in that 30%? And what, what exactly is the 70% that'll survive? I mean, Cheesecake Factory had 300 locations and they just basically sent out an email and said, we're not paying rent. I mean, can, can a small mom and pop shop do that? I, I want to interject. I would just really quickly, I want to interject because I, I want to bring up one, one point that David Cheng said in the article that was actually really salient. Um, you know, if you're going to have government intervention, if you're going to have relief for restaurants, that relief also has to, um, when you were talking earlier about like the ecosystem, like the vendors and the meat purveyors and everyone else that's involved with the restaurant and service industry, right? Mm -hmm. David Chang was saying like, it's kind of a similar point, like bailing out or, or I, was, I should say re providing relief to restaurants would, would most likely have to include bailing out real estate owners and, you know, landlords that actually own uh, lenders, you know, anyone who's sort of higher up on the economic, like the food industry economic chain, right? So I think like your question about um, who will survive, I think part of that relies on like, you know, those, those, that, that factor, like the other, the other parties that are involved in that ecosystem too. Yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's a very complicated answer. As far as David Chang's that additional point, I would agree with that because like, imagine, imagine you still survive. But your landlord doesn't, and then some like private equity, like Dick private equity company, <laughs> buys it for cheap. But to be honest with you, they're not they're not going to give a shit, right? You're going to shut down anyway because your fucking Dick private equity like landlord now has no gives two shits about what you went through three or four six months ago, right? The the thing I don't know the analysis on this, but some people think that Cheesecake Factory is is a is a negotiating move. Because their spaces are so large, and they know that those tenant, those landlords can't afford to rent that to anyone else to renegotiate rents, which is smart and also relevant. I to answer the the question of what will drop off, I'm really sure a lot of fine dining will drop off even more. I've been through two economic, like let's let's see, the fall of the economy and the bubble burst. Right, fine dining takes a long time to build back up. Right, people just don't spend on luxury. For a long time, they get really nervous about spending their money, right? It's also it's also you've, you've lost that routine. Even though you want to support that, like those restaurants need a lot a lot more. They need a full house all the time to make profit. I think they drop off. I think um, I think a lot of chains will will definitely minimize um, and drop off a lot of locations to recover. I think a lot of mom pops that are probably let's say. 1500 square feet and, and larger um, a big portion of those guys will drop off because it's just to manage that kind of dining room and the real estate it may not justify just the the amount of you know it may take a year to recover from this that's a long time that's a lot of stress on your body and your mind um i think quick serve i think quick serve and anything like like in la we have like portos like they've, they've proven to be like the recession proof restaurant because it's inexpensive. Um, it feeds the masses. I think they're probably sitting on capital so they can, you know, they can wait it out. They also get, they, 
places like that, that they usually negotiate really good real estate deals with the community. They get a lot of like a lot of tax credits from the community itself. So they, they they'll they'll probably survive through inexpensive large places that do high volume. Those are probably the places that will bounce back immediately because of the necessity to eat. And and you know, there's gonna be a lot of people that want to get back out there too, but they're not gonna go spend like fifteen, twenty dollars a person. They're they're happy to spend like, you know, get a potato ball, get a sandwich for like seven bucks all all in. Like those places will survive. I mean, I think mo I think in terms of uh, quick service, I think the places that are higher end, I think they'll they'll die off a lot too. So I, I want to talk a bit about the landowners and the property owners. I know you're you're negotiating all that right now, but I mean we have so we we're in the before all of this happened, we had a pretty pretty well pretty good economy, but there's still a lot of empty storefronts everywhere. Like who actually goes into a door anymore, ground floor? and buys anything in person, much less sort of go into a restaurant. I mean, people were doing that, going to bars and restaurants. But in this day and age of delivering Amazon, who was actually doing that? So if if these landlords suddenly kick kick out a restaurant that's been doing pretty well for years, what are they actually going to get to come in afterwards? I mean, do we really need another Boost Mobile everywhere on every single corner? What is actually going to go in its place? Does it Does it make them any money to kick somebody out and wait a year or nine months for another restaurant to build up and, and move in? Is it really, is it, is that really going to happen? Um, I think the short answer is no, but here, here's the thing too. Here's the funny thing about a restaurant in terms of commercial real estate, even though in the last five to seven years, the world of food has, has exploded right through food porn and Yelp and everything else for real estate. We're also some of the worst tenants because we destroy spaces for, because of the number of people to come in because of the equipment um like it the wear and tear on that space is is way higher than like like a mom pop like a kind of clothing shop but there's no destruction to that like maybe the walls and like that but they can touch it up it's really cheap the amount of investment for someone to come in to take over a space and touch it up is very expensive and let's say these landlords you know a lot of times they'll get what they call tenant improvement which is usually a like usually approved by the bank where they can kind of credit, you know, and tack it onto the rent and give the new tenant money towards improvements. I don't think that's going to be available, right? So I don't think you're going to have tenant improvement available for a while. Uh, if you lose someone, I think that space is going to be dead. I don't think a Boost Mobile or anything like that, they're going to be, they're going to really reconsider coming in because they still have to fix those things to make it appropriate for their operation and to also be approved for, for code. I think if there's landlords that do that and kick them, I think they're going to just repurpose the space and like break it up maybe. But I think economically, I don't think it, I don't think it plays out because right now restaurants are still anchors for, for businesses. Like outside of other kind of brick and mortar businesses, I think restaurants do a lot more foot traffic than others. But, you know, there's also a question of how long will that foot traffic take to come back? Because, you know, even if the government lifts the quarantine at the end, end of April, I'll be honest with you. It's not to say I don't trust the government. But I don't trust that it's not still out there, and I I think I'll still stay in for a while. Let me let me give me five minutes right now to sort of have jump on my soapbox right now and and propose something on the political side for you guys to do. Um, there's been a lot of talk about rent control on the on the residential side, um, part of the Costa Hawkins Act, um, and it, I think it went to ballot, didn't 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 go through. But 
this guy Acosta also did something on the commercial side. Uh, it's a legislation that came out in 1987 called the Costa Keen Seymour Commercial Property Investment Act of 1987 that bans commercial rent control as a policy tool in California. So Berkeley was experimenting with uh, rent control in the 80s. And when that happened, um, on commercial spaces, they basically enact on commercial spaces. On commercial spaces. And so, I mean, this is going to be pretty difficult to do because, you know, how how do we actually, what people feel about rent control. But, you know, my thing is there's just so much empty space everywhere. There's so much, I think property owners are just leaving things empty for just years and years. Even in nice neighborhoods, you're going to see a lot of empty storefronts. I mean, I lived in the Mission District off of 16th and Mission for 10 years. And there was just always, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% of the spaces were just empty. you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys are thinking about anything long term, but how do you feel about rent control for commercial spaces? I look, I love the idea of it. And I'm not an economist, but I think, you know, look, there the economy of the economics of that is you rent control, right? So you, you, you lock in the market rate. You don't allow it to grow for a while. You keep it, you keep it consistent. So when buyer confidence or, you know, any other confidence gets there, they know it won't it'll be locked for a while, too. Right, they know they don't have to worry about a three percent. Like when a tri- typically, it's a three percent annual raise in rent, or, or someone that spikes even more. That, I mean, I mean, and also, I mean, I don't know how rent control works with triple nets and cams, which are different kind of commercial, you know, uh, real estate like uh, deals or percentage rents. But I would assume that would lock that too. Um, and percentage rents, like basically, if you if you if you max out, let's say the cap is two million a year, and you make two point six million. Instead of paying your flat rent, you pay the percentage of two point six million that you negotiated. I think that's huge. Like, it, I think that would inc- it would take a while to encourage people to come back, but I think you might have more. I think you'd have more tenants and less dead spaces. You know, because I mean, the fall of the economy was pretty bad, but people came still came up with new ideas and they want to try them and they raise money from their friends and they do that. I don't think that's going to die. Um, I think, I think because there's so many spaces, I don't know, like I said, I think people are resilient. I think, you know, people have dreams all the time. I think they'll see a space that's dead until they have an idea and that space will just like click in their head. I'm like, I need this space for this thing. And they go in, they know there's rent control. They're more likely going to be able to close in that space or get in faster and then make that space active. And then also rejuvenate a community, which that, you know, that should be only be the goal, right? If you rejuvenate a community, let's say it's not, it doesn't necessarily increase foot traffic, but it increases traffic within that area in general. And then it, it increases the pie for everyone because everyone, more people are frequenting that. Like I, I did personally experience what you're talking about in the mission. Like one of our moves, we moved to Chinatown in LA, which was dead for a long time too. That was inspired by Roy Choi. So Roy had moved uh, Chago from West LA to Chinatown. And then Roy told us, Roy was like, when you should move Star Kitchen to Chinatown too. And after we moved there, like everyone started coming in and flooding it. And now Chinatown in LA, you know, pre-COVID-19 is the home of Howlin' Ray's, is, you know, was the home of Pog Pog. It has a, is the home of like the sandwich place, barbecue place. Lassa. Like once Lhasa, like it's rent control can inspire a lot of that. And it's, it's obviously one piece of the puzzle. But, you know, L.A. rents are already really expensive. So I think, you know what? I think it'd be great, too, because you don't have to worry about negotiating. That helps a lot, too, right? You don't have to worry about a mind game. 
you don't have to worry about like if you just like if you know that an area let's say it's council district one the district you know la's built into different council districts like you'll know that this this area is, is locked at this this um price that allows you to have less variable cost which is what ruins a business like the more fixed costs that you can build in the more confidence you can have in terms of raising money or operating it and you can get to the point of pulling the trigger signing on the dotted line opening your business and hopefully being that guiding light like the howling rays of chinatown that will bring more people in and then bring more tenants and then build a community and get back to normalcy as quickly as possible i'm for it great i'll send you the uh, i'll send you um, a petition you could be the first signer i would love to i i, I mean i i read somewhere before this like someone god well no it was during this i think one of the countries instituted commercial rent control for like five or seven years once COVID hit them. And I was really impressed with that. I'm like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Cause like how, who knows how long will it take to recover from this? And they, they were pretty progressive about it. And I can't, I don't remember if it was Australia or something like that, but someone's already implemented that in one country. It's not Vietnam. <laughs> I'm guessing. Well, we also have, we also had a cool music video that, that prevented people from going That's out true. and like our, our, our numbers haven't, yeah, but our, our numbers haven't spiked cause we're also the viral, that we have the we have the viral virus video of the world. Have have you guys checked on the ground in Vietnam to see if that's really true? Because I only hear that on American media that it was the catchiest tune in all of all the world. Is it really helping? I can't imagine. The only thing uh, I see that that spreads over there are Korean music videos. Uh, well, one thing you have to think about is like the majority of the population is like young, right? So maybe they're they're more apt to respond to viral shit like that. Gotcha. I don't know. They're, they don't, they don't, I don't see Vietnam in the top 20 list where we're number one. So I don't know. Like it's, it seems to be under, I mean, it, it's under better control. It helps having us. a totalitarian government too. I, I would imagine that maybe plays a part. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. You walk in, you're like, this isn't COVID. <laughs> this is just a common cold. Leave. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Taiwan didn't spike and they're closest to China. They handled it well. So, I mean, I, it, it doesn't make me, it, it doesn't make me think any less that Vietnam couldn't handle it either. Yeah. I think it's, I think we're, we're moving towards the end now. We have, uh, we wanted to end it with some rapid fire questions. Some of which I don't, it sounds like an inside joke. Do you want right, to take cool. this on? Um, I don't know anything about anime. Yeah. So, uh, rapid fire. So whatever comes, comes to mind. Um, what do you, as a longtime restaurateur, chef, celebrity chef, uh, food industry, uh, Titan, I would say. Uh, what do you think about Yelp? Oh, I love Yelp. I don't actually agree with everyone. I think it's the best thing that's happened to restaurants because it forged you, it forged you the way to figure out what's not working and fix it immediately as opposed to learning six to 10 months from then and just shutting down your restaurant. If you guys travel to another city, do you check Yelp for restaurants? Yes. Yelp and tri TripAdvisor. Well, Evo. I mean, I just use it to make sure that the food isn't trash. Does that make sense? Sure. Like just to make sure it's not trash. Well, I, I'm I'm also an analytical guy. I can I, I look at the averages and you know how many elites are reviewing and how many people actually have reviews. Like you know you have to if you dig deep, you can figure out if it's also a bullshit like you know four and a half star or at least decent. But then you also have to go in the city and figure out is their four and a half star equal to an LA four and a half star or a San Francisco four and a half star? Does that make That's sense? I, I also look for the top dishes because I, I, I feel like I get really annoyed w when I ask a server, like, what's what's the best dish here? What's your favorite dish? 
and they're just like, oh, everything, like everything. everything's great. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to, I forgot to rephrase the question. Who, which dish is ordered yeah. the most? Like, do I really need to ask that? Can that just be the same question? Like, what's popular is also the the question of what gets ordered the most. So then I just start off with what gets ordered the most, and then they, they seem annoyed. I usually ask if I'm about to die in five minutes, what would I have that so would make dramatic? <laughs> oh wow, that. If I if I if I had one yeah. bullet in my gun and my gun is in my pocket and I'm about to shoot myself and you're gonna give me a dish, what should I eat? Dude, it works. They they go, oh oh this I one. think I've actually seen you use that before, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I do it a lot. Um it's called the yeah, five nope, minutes to die. Speaking of which Well I think Yelp is actually helpful if you marry it with something like infatuation too. You mentioned TripAdvisor win, like there's a lot of data points that you can access, right? Um that's publicly available. Um but that's interesting. Okay. Um Moving on, what would be your last meal? I used to say kahato. That I used to say that a lot because it is one of my favorite Vietnamese dishes, and they, you know, I I still feel like it. The kahato is like caramelized catfish with pork belly and a clay pot with rice. It's just so comforting, and it's a little sweet and savory, and it's really has this big bouquet of flavor. Like it just makes me feel all warm inside, and then I could die. Can I, can I say something controversial that I don't know if you agree with is anytime I see that on the menu, I think it's going to be good because no one has the balls to just do it with a, in a clay pot and sell it at a restaurant unless they know how to do it. Like is somebody who's going to half-ass it going to serve that at a restaurant? Is that a bold statement or no? No, we, we used to serve it in, in Chinatown, actually. That was one of our favorite dishes. Like it's, it is a bold statement. Well, the thing is I've had it really crappy in a, in a clay pot too because sometimes a lot of times the clay pot is just for sure. looks at uh, some restaurants and it's you know if they're if honestly if it's a vietnamese restaurant with 100 dishes i'm not ordering kakoto unless that's like the one thing everyone comes for um i hate so, those places the cheesecake factories of vietnamese restaurants don't ever go there no you go to the place that has the name on the restaurant what does this place serve pho do you order anything else no pho and then the opposite of my the opposite uh, of that which is my theory is if it doesn't have the word pho in it you don't order the pho do you agree with that or if it like if you I go to a would, place called what Jimmy's, about Golden Deli? They don't their their pho is is, is uh, widely is well regarded, and they don't have pho in the name in L.A. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, did are you in L.A.? Because I'm in San Jose right now. I'm sorry. Did you say something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think generally speaking, maybe like Golden, Golden Deli. I think they're. I mean, this is just me. I don't hate Golden Deli. I think their pho is a little I don't, salty. I don't really like their pho that much. But, so yeah, so so yeah, I, I just didn't want to prove Vu's point. <laughs> All right, uh, last question. This is the, this is the most important one. Um, who would win in a fight between One Punch Man and Goku? Oh, One Punch Man, easily for real. A serious, serious punch, not 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 a normal punch. Killer serious punch. I think he would totally be wow. Goku. No, no, no <laughs> question. Yeah, I don't know what that means. But great, One Punch Man wins. Yeah. Fuck Goku. Yeah, he also wears a he also wears a booby shirt. Come on. Hey, Yellow Parallers, it's Jeff Oki back. Just wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. Before we end it, don't forget to follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere you find your other favorite podcasts. Or just tell Siri, Alexa, or Google to play the Yellow Peril podcast. It's that easy. Let us know what you think. As always, leave your comments or questions in a voicemail at 8452-YELLOW. That's 845-293-5509. We got a new number. Or email us at yellowperilpod at gmail.com. 
If you have an event or project you'd like us to feature in Fresh Yellow, please feel free to contact us. We're always happy to help spread the word. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch the latest episodes soon after the podcast drops. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us, please consider following us, leaving us a review, and supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yellowperilpod. Now back to the interview. Before we finish, uh, I just wanted to thank Wynn for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge about uh, being a restaurateur, being uh, in the industry for so long, and also what the current state of the industry is going to be uh, in light of the epidemic. Um, a lot of stuff to think about. Um, before we go, though, uh, is there anything you want to plug? Wow. Well, what am I going to plug? Now Now is the time not to talk about butt plugs, right? What, okay. Uh, this, this is the main thing. This, I, I, you know, I wrote a book. I started releasing the recipes for free on Reddit. So if you're on Reddit, the subreddit is, you know, r slash Starry Kitchen. What's the name of the recipe. book and where can people get it? Um, it's called The Adventures in Starry Kitchen. You can buy anywhere where books are sold. But there's a dude on Amazon that has like 30 of them and selling for $5. You should buy them now. Um, and you can find me on Instagram, Starry Kitchen, Facebook, Starry Kitchen, Twitter, Starry Kitchen. I don't Snapchat anymore. And uh, you can, e- dude, if you, if anyone's bored enough, they want to email me info at Starry Kitchen. Um, I may not, or info at StarryKitchen.com. You can totally email me. I may not reply. I may block you, but if it's cool, then uh, I'll get back to you in a couple days when I'm not playing with my kid. Yeah, I'll try. And what about, uh, what about button mash? Where can people, uh, order the food on, on, uh, on what apps? You can order the food on Grubhub, Caviar, and Uber Eats, or you can just call in and you can find us in the Echo Park at 1391 Sunset. And uh, you can buy a, a gift card. You can buy the balls, garlic noodles, and we'd really appreciate it if you if you do. And if you haven't tried our food before, please look us up and you know order delivery and uh, you know look out look out for our. Uh, our Kickstarter or crowdfunding campaign to help support our staff so that we can bring them back uh, whenever we figure out the end of this quarantine. This this brings <laughs> us to the end. And I think since the last the last time you were here, you did this too. But before we end the show, we always end with our karaoke closer, where oh, we right. sing a song from a topic that we discussed. And always, whenever we have a guest, they pick the song. And of course, they lead in the chorus. So Oh, 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 I got it. I got it. I got it. Money, money, money by ABBA. Can you do that? Sure. Great choice. That's great. Yeah. That seems I mean, appropriate. We're Vietnamese guys. Of course we know ABBA songs. Let's hear. Oh, money, money, money. Ain't it funny? In a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world. Money, money, money. Always sunny. In a rich man's world. Ah, all the world I could bring uh, if I had a little money. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world. That's that's the best I could do. Great, thank you. That was that was wonderful. You're, you're thank you. Thank, I hope I didn't break your podcast with that. No, Chung broke broke it. Chung broke it from the very beginning. Sorry. <laughs> that's why. That's that's We're why they don't have me on here. Entirely out of this thing, so it'll just be like <laughs> you, me. It wouldn't be the first silence. time. <laughs>
Yeah, they're like, dude, this win is just all non sequitur. Like, I don't even know where he's. He's like, he's like the Noel Gallagher of restaurateurs. He just we might change his voice blue. into like Beaker's voice. Oh, that would whatever, be awesome. whatever. Whatever helps with the downloads, man. <laughs>